Welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production where we look at the Seahawks from every angle every week. I'm your host, Candace Higgins, and as always, it's a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Unfortunately, today we are talking about a Seahawks loss. The Seahawks went down to the Tampa Bay Bucks. Their final score was 21 16 in Germany. It was quite the interesting game on, on a couple of points. The first half was absolutely terrible on both defense and offense. The second half, the offense did a better job of being able to come out in the rhythm, um, got some players going. Geno did have a terrible, and I mean terrible, fumble in the goal line to, to give ultimately gave the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks an opportunity to score, and they did. But outside of that play, Geno did play. Phenomenal. Um, he had a good game otherwise. And I and I think there's a lot to take away from this game. For me, though, I think it comes down to coaching. And some people walk away from this game being more upset at Geno Smith. I understand. Some people walk away from this game being upset with Kenneth Walker III, who had a terrible game. He had 10 carries and only 17 yards, averaging 1.7 yards a carry. It's pathetic. Now, granted, they did not run the ball in the second half, understandably, because it, it wasn't working in the first half. And that was one of my keys to the game, was to run the ball. It seemed like they were going to try to, but it wasn't successful, and I don't think they adjusted quickly enough. But to me, this game came purely down to coaching. There was a lot of things that I didn't understand about the game plan, and while some people might be panicked that the Seahawks defense had a lot of the same issues it used to have, you saw the inability to stop the run consistently. That was the issue that they had had um, really prior to week six. And they had seemed to be doing better in that regard, but if you looked at this game, you wouldn't think so at all. At all. And that's why I say I blame coaching. It's not just the defense. It To me, the issues that you saw on defense were more a result of the coaching strategies on a lot of ends. So today what we're going to do, I'll give you a few thoughts on this game. And I'll tell you why in more detail I think this ultimate loss fell on P. Carroll. And sure, the players have to execute better. They do. But they're playing on a terrible field. And I feel like when you're out of the elements like this, when you're in another country and you're traveling more miles to there and back than you normally would, I think it's coaching that determines how disciplined the team will be, how prepared the team will be. And I just saw time after time instances of where coaching, I think, failed. So today we're going to do, like I said, we're going we're gonna to evaluate that. How to best do that, in my opinion, is we're bringing back Parson Pete. Um, for those of you who may not remember, Parson Pete is a segment we do where I break down some of Pete Carroll's comments and I give you sort of my interpretation of what he's saying and I, I translate that accordingly. All right, so I'm going to start with the defensive side because I feel like that's the side that I think disappointed the most. The offense had a strong six and a half, and I think that was just a matter of adjusting. And once they adjusted, I think they were able to get it going. And you saw a lot more of the offense that they had been able to be the past few weeks. The first mistake started 
before the game even started. I, I believe this was really one of the game-changing moves by the coaching staff, and they decided to deactivate or not to activate Brian Monet, who had been key in helping them stop the run. He's obviously a bigger guy, nose tackle, um, and they also didn't have LJ Collier activated, which I'm not complaining about. I'm not a big LJ Collier fan, but you know, those are two guys who had been contributing more in terms of stopping the run. They felt so confident that the Bucks wouldn't run the ball or wouldn't stick to it all that they didn't even consider having those guys active on the roster, which is a really, really bold move. And I'll admit, initially, I kind of respected the the strategy, I guess, in the sense of how bold it is, right? How sure they have to be in their ability to be able to mitigate the run. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to be so bold as to say, we could take our best run stoppers off the field because we're so sure you're going to be able to run the ball, if you're going to make that bold of a statement, you got to be able to back it up. I mean, you do. And to make that statement and then play in their four-man fronts, two guys standing up and two in the middle, the way they did, Playing in their four-man front is what had them be one of the worst run defenses in the league through the first six weeks. So I don't understand why you would double down so much on that. It's one thing not to activate the player, the personnel that could help you stop the run. It's even bolder to play in the style that allows for the opponent to be able to best run the ball. I don't understand why you do both of those things. Either have the personnel that can stop the run available in case they actually do get it going, or play the way that you've been playing before that's worked against stopping the run and still choose not to have your personnel available. Got to be one or the other. You can't then give them the best looks to run the ball and then not have run defenders activated. That is a setup for failure in its finest. And I will praise Coach Carroll when he does well, but this time I think this was a mistake. And it was huge. And I think, I'm not even sure that the Bucks would have run the ball that much if they hadn't been so infuriated by that decision. Right? If if I'm the coach, if I'm if I'm tie balls on the other end. And I see that they didn't activate one of their key contributors to the run game who normally has started every game unless he's not healthy. If I see that, I'm going to feel disrespected to the finest and I'm going to run it down your throat just to prove a point. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, I want to run it down your throat just to prove a point because you disrespected even the possibility that we could run the ball. You basically pretended like the run game was non-existent. And to Pete Carroll's credit, they had not been. But it's so huge of a challenge. It's almost a slap in the face that I think any competitor would be offended by. And it's poking the bear, basically. I mean, I think, I'm not sure Tampa Bay came to Germany intending on running the ball as many times as they did. I'm sure of it. In fact, 
the the Buccaneers ran the ball 44 times. I'm sorry. I know they wanted to get their run game on track, but something tells me that they didn't have any intention on having 44 rushing yard attempts. 30 is considered ample. They had 44 just to prove a point. I think that that in itself could have been the difference in the game, in my opinion. And I go to the two-man fronts again because I feel like it, it wasn't just the personnel issue. It was the two-man fronts which killed them. And it didn't work early on, so why not adjust? Why not adjust? Why not adjust in the middle of the game and stop and go back to the bare fronts that had been working? They didn't do that. In part, I get I would guess maybe it's maybe it's the, maybe they're related. They didn't have the personnel to go back to the to the way they would have wanted to play, which is disappointing to put yourself in that position, not to be able to adjust accordingly the way that they needed to. Another thing that I think was a mistake was being so ill prepared for the quality of the field. Pete Carroll has mentioned in the past that they had their scouts come out and view the land and map everything out, which is all well, fine, and good. It seems like they mapped everything out from a tourist perspective wonderfully. Okay, nobody looked into the field, the type of cleats they might need. Nobody. Nobody. Sure, the bugs slipped. They slid a little bit as well. But they didn't struggle and slide nearly as much as the Seahawks players did. And something tells me that they had cleats that were a better fit for the field. And I think that was the advantage of the game. It, it was a huge advantage. The pass rush was non-existent in part because they couldn't get any grip on the ground to get around the edge. Not without feeling like they're risking injury. So that was a big a big no-no. And it just felt like this team... Pete Carroll, and I'll, I'll play clips here in a bit as we get through parsing Pete, but he talked a lot about how connected this, this trip was, how memorable it was, how meaningful it was. And I feel like they didn't do a, good, do a good enough job of treating this like a business trip. The vibe I get is very much so off-season retreat vacation. More than it was, this is a business trip. And for players who are particularly young and impressionable, if you don't send that message clearly, if everything that you do isn't around that vibe, it's not going to hit. This is a group of young players. And if you treat it like a tourist vacation, so will they. So will they. I just don't feel like the tone was set enough. The game plan didn't work for me from a defense perspective, but... The game really didn't make sense to me from an offensive perspective either. Up until this week, the Seahawks were one of the leading teams consistently in passing on first downs. And all of a sudden, they decide they want to run on first, second down, and pass on third. I We haven't seen that since the run-run pass days before Let Russ Cook. That's how long it's been since we've seen that poor of an offensive game plan. It was clear that they could stop the run. They just they didn't do a good job of, like, trying to counter that. They didn't do the things that they, that 
worked well to them. And I understand they have a pretty poor rush defense, and so the opportunity was to try to attack that. Fair enough. But given how much emphasis Kenneth Walker III had had, how much hype he had been getting, I think it's reasonable to assume that the Buccaneers keyed in on how to stop this guy, and they weren't going to let him get any yards. So why was it until halftime when things started to change? It's simple. Go back to that plan, do up-tempo, do things like that earlier, you know? Throw on first down or throw on second down because I feel like while I thought they would be able to run to open up the the the, uh, the pass, it turned out to be the opposite. They needed to pass in order to – they were never able to open up the run. But in theory, I think they would have been able to run a little bit more had they tried in the second half to run a little bit more. But they were playing from behind at that point. So I think that was a factor they might would have had the game been a little bit more evened up in that second half. But I, I just think from a game planning perspective on every angle, it didn't look good. A couple of more things. Two more things. One, I didn't see a lot of three tight end sets. In this game, the, th- the tight ends played the least they have of any game. And the tight end said it's been huge, not just in the past game, but in the run game. And so I don't understand why those options were limited in this example. If you wanted to run the ball that much, why take out the three tight end sets that can, that can really help, help you do that? Right? It, it, I mean, it was, it was almost like, the game plan. Well, uh, I'll say these two things first. Another thing I noticed on defense, three safety looks were almost non-existent. They picked on Kobe Bryant a ton. I think I would have rather had Josh Jones, Ryan Neal, Quandre Diggs sets because they picked on Kobe a lot. And it kept their drives going as a result of not, not changing that. And they played Cody Barton a lot. Cody Barton should not be playing over 75% of the snaps, and he did. This team had learned from those things. Those are things that they, those were key decisions they made. Doing more three safety looks, reducing Cody Barton's looks, made all the difference in their winning schedule. And they just, it's and, and this is the statement I wanted to say before. With all of that in mind, to me this seemed like a game plan that they came up with in week four and just dusted it back off. Seriously. It accounted for none of the progress that they had made to this point. Or maybe it was even a preseason, like, plan. Preseason, this is what the team is going to do. Because based off of the information that they've learned over the past four weeks, or five weeks now, I don't understand how that could have been the game plan you came in with. How? To run those 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 four-man fronts that you knew weren't good against the run. That would invite them to run. And they would probably do well. Ter- backup running backs, third-string running backs had run through that four-man front. Everybody has run through that four-man front. It doesn't matter if they can't run a ball. If you run that four-man front, they will. That was made obvious. 
They completely neglected that. It's obvious you don't play Cody Barton that many snaps. They just had amnesia, I suppose. Three tight end sets has been an a, a important part to victories. They threw that out. Passing on first downs, threw that out too. So, all that to say this. I don't, I'm pretty optimistic about the outlook of the team. If they go back to what they were doing before, if they just threw this game out, to me it feels like a one-off. They could easily throw this game out and pick back off where they left because it seemed like this game plan was made in the preseason and they dusted it off and decided they were going to implement it. They didn't see anything wrong with it and keep it going. The Bucks were more prepared and they ran coaching circles around Pete Carroll. He should be dizzy. But Pete made a lot of interesting comments that I think give way and insight into their decision into some of the decisions that they made and, and ultimately where he feels like the team is at this point. So with that being said, let's get into our next segment, Parsing Pete. Ever wonder what's really going on in the mind of head coach Pete Carroll? The answer to that is yes. Do you sometimes have more questions than answers after press conferences? Why would they tell you that? <laughs> I don't know that. Well, we've got your breakdown right here. It's time for Parsing Pete. Well, that was fun. I mean, your team is flying from a health standpoint. I'm curious the decision was made to to inactivate or deactivate Monet. Maybe to that thought that this team wouldn't run it 44 times. Is that an accurate yeah, illustration? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly the illustration. Exactly. You're on it. I'm kind of pissed that you pick up so easily. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, we, we went with uh, Miles because he's got different makeup. He's quicker and he's more of a pass rush oriented guy. They just threw the ball 58 times. They're leading the NFL in attempts and yardage and all that kind of stuff. And we know the style of their run game. We thought we would be able to hold up, you know, without having uh, Brian with us. And he has been a big factor in keeping us, you know, our level of play. But that that demonstrated what we thought we needed to do. Simply put. Pete just simply underestimated his opponent. They came into this game feeling pretty confident about their run defense. I mentioned it on my last episode, but up until the week against the Bucks, they had only allowed, they were number four in yard and yards rushed allowed in the last three weeks. So they really found their rhythm in terms of stopping the run. And I just think they got too arrogant. I think they felt like this team wouldn't be able to do anything. And what the critical mistake was, was stopping all the things they did up until that point to actually allow for them to stop the run. Guess what they did? They stopped the four-man fronts and they started playing more bare fronts, things that worked for the personnel that they had. Had they done that, I think this whole game goes differently. But it's very simple. He underestimated his opponent. He was arrogant in his thinking. And he just felt like they were just going to pin the ears back and rush the passer. They skipped a step in their game planning. Bottom line. Yeah, I, I mean, the second half, he was marvelous in the second half. He was doing everything. And uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, the fumble is the play. we got to keep him from running the ball, too, you know, because he's, 
he's just not as well well equipped as the runners, you know. And uh, and that guy got a great punch on it, did it exactly right. <clears throat> and we have to defend against that. But Geno's more vulnerable, just like every quarterback is, you know. And you have to just look out for him. There's a few quarterbacks I happen to watch. Uh, some of Josh Allen, I was looking, checking out some stuff, and he's running like a fullback. You know, that's different. You know, and, and our guys got to take care of the football, and so we have to avoid the opportunities that they. I think Pete hated the play call. I really do. I don't think he blames Geno as much as that, as much for the play call. It doesn't seem like he was a big fan of it. And it's it's interesting. It's interesting what he said there because he basically implied that Geno's not a running quarterback, which you know he's not. That's not necessarily news. But it's interesting that he wants to avoid him doing any quarterback draws or anything along those lines. He doesn't feel like that's something you should do. And Geno has shown that ability to be able to run to get you first downs. He's he's had some pretty good games where he's been able to do that and help the team win. But it just seems like that's something Pete wants to avoid. It's particularly a contrast I find interesting because that's not been the case, at least in the Russell Wilson era. They, in fact, didn't go in all on offensive line, maybe get the resources they could have because they felt like Russell can run. And I think use that to quote unquote their advantage. And he's basically saying the opposite, which you know. So the question is, did he learn his, is it just a learning curve or does he just feel like that's specific to Geno? Um, he referenced Josh Allen. And of course, Josh Allen is out of this world when it comes to running the football. But it'll be interesting to see if we ever see anything like that again. I get the sense based off of this clip alone, that we won't see any more quarterback draws for, for Geno Smith. And it'll be interesting to see how that impacts the offense going forward in the second half. Is it just quarterback draws? Is it that he doesn't mind him running as long as it's, you know, wide open on the first down? That's something I'll be monitoring. But I think it's even more interesting just considering that's not something you hear very often from Pete Carroll about quarterbacks running. He's generally never been against that so it's been it's pretty interesting clip but i'll spend enough time talking about the game and what went wrong and how they could have won and you know the impact i think pete has on that what i want to shift gears to is some things that i think are interesting regarding the future particularly at the quarterback position um, pete carroll made some comments about gino about drew lock he was asked about salary and so I want to do a deep dive into Pete's comments and how I think it impacts how he views the quarterback position going forward um now I guess going forward for the rest of the season and in seasons of the future so let's get into it Pete we've talked so much about how well Gino has played up to this point where are areas you think you can you you would expect to see some more improvement from him coming out of the bye and, and going into the sort of the stretch run of the season? Uh, just continue to take advantage of the scheme and, and you know, make sure that, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, our opportunities down the field. You know, he's done a great job. He's taken care of the football in beautiful fashion. Uh, you know, our guys can get can get behind guys at times, and we got to make sure that we, you know, we see that. Um, and, and then 
uh, we, we just got, we have to make sure that we're keeping our, our tempo going. We got caught tempo-wise um, trying to f make things perfect at the line of scrimmage, you know, and, and as they changed their looks, we changed our looks and we ran out of time. It kept us under a little bit of, a little bit of pressure that, you know, it hasn't been a big deal, but that it's happened a few times. We could be cleaner there. Um, we love to stay ahead of the tempo and, and we got, we, we fell prey to it a couple times, you know, so we can do better there. But um, right now, I think we just, let's go back to going. Let's just go, let's get back on the practice field. Let's get to the game field. Let's keep playing football because uh, we're excited about where we're, where we're headed. So essentially, I think Pete's saying he wants a bit more explosion. I think to some extent, that's one area that has it missing. Not as much deep, deep balls. Not to say he doesn't do it. Gino does do it, and he does it very well. In fact, according to PFF, there are very few quarterbacks in this league that have more what they identify as big-time throws than Geno Smith. Uh, Geno Smith has had 21 big-time throws, which are like elite-level hard throws. Um, he's had 21 through 10 weeks. The quarterbacks who are ahead of him are Josh Allen with 24, but he also has 19 turnover-worthy plays compared to Geno's 13. And Aaron Rodgers, 24, compared to, and he has like only nine turnover-worthy plays. So that's great company for Geno to be keeping. So he does still, he's very much still a threat downfield. But the, the, the difference, I think, is just the frequency, right? So of his throws that he does, only 11% of all his throws have been more than 20 yards, a lot of it is more intermediate, short game, and that's Geno's bread and butter. And I think Coach is saying he's fine with that, but he just wants, I think he'd prefer it to be more like two or three big-time throws per game um, that he's averaging, really trying to throw the deep ball better overall. Um, that's how he's gotten most of his points. Geno Smith, 11 of his touchdowns, on those 21 throws, 11 of his touchdowns came from passes that were 20 yards or more. Yet his next closest was five in the in the short game. He's got five touchdowns off of that. But when he does throw the ball more often, he gets points. He gets points on the board. He could stand to be a little bit more accurate at that department. Right now, his completion percentage for passes over – Twin yards is 16 for 30, 36, which is 44%. If you adjust that for drops, it's 52%, which is better. Um, but it's good enough where, you know, if he just did it more often, it could be a huge part of his game. I think they really want to spread the defenses out a little bit more. I think Pete's thinking that, you know, teams are just piling up in the box. And ever since Rashad Penny has gone down, to be honest, the big-time throws have – haven't been as there hadn't been as many as there were, I'd say, um, weeks three through six or re really three through five. That that after that Saints game, you really didn't see Geno throw the ball downfield as much as he was. He cut up in that Saints game, absolutely was a flamethrower, and you just never saw anything like that again. You saw one here, you know, here or there, but I think teams are more just deciding to, you know. They're better off loading up in the box, and that makes things harder on Kim Walker the third. And I think I agree with Kent, with uh, Pete Sentiment in that in that way. So I think the goal is to just increase the frequency to make it a bigger part of Geno's game. 
not to, you know, not overbearingly. So he's doing a great job with what he's got. But if they could just take advantage of that part of his game a little bit more, I think P says they'll be a lot more of a dangerous team. And I would agree. He's also talking about Geno's tendency to try to get the perfect play call right sometimes, which is a result and sometimes that delays delays of games because you know he's trying to adjust to the line of scrimmage and he does that extremely well. I don't particularly find that as a problem. I'd rather him try to get the protections perfect and every now and then get a delay a game than have a delay a game for absolutely no reason like he, like things used to be when Russell Wilson was around and you know or what's the timeout that kind of thing and then ultimately he still ends up getting sacked for like 20 yards right. Um, Gino typically when he's making those audibles they're pretty spot on for the most part and he does a really good job of taking advantage of what the defense is giving him so because of that I don't mind it as much and I don't think Pete does either he seemed in, it seemed insignificant but it was a critique I think they have gotten away from the quick game a little bit more weeks one and two it was really heavy on quick game because Gino didn't have that much control at the line of scrimmage in the first two weeks and they're they really weren't accessing the full playbook and I think they feel like they could take advantage of a little bit more hurry-up offense. I, not to say that they have trouble consistently with the delay games. They don't. But just, you know, no huddle, hurry-up offense, running that a little bit more frequently. And I think I would agree. I think though, I think if, if Geno were to be able to have, you know, at least three big-time throws per game and continue – or pick back up with some of that hurry-up offense. Um, I know they've been running games out to, for time purposes, and so the run game's been a part of that. But I think some quick game could really just make this team a little bit more dynamic, That make the offense a little bit more dynamic um, like it was in the Lions game or, like I said, the Saints game when it was just a little bit of everything play-calling-wise. I'd like to see that go back. And so with Pete, I think – those are the, those are very valid criticisms. They're not indictments on Gino in any way, but they are, I think, really true areas of improvement for him. Outside of that, there's not much more that you can ask for Gino that he hasn't already shown. Now, I think it's just a question of the only thing Gino has less left to prove is can he do it as games get in, as the weather gets more cold and frigid, as it gets harder, can he do it in you know, tough conditions. Can he do it in the playoffs? I think those are the remaining questions for Geno. Can he rise to the occasion? Can he put the team on his back? I think you'd love to see a game-winning drive out of Geno to know he's got that in him. You saw a little bit of that in the Lions game where he was able to put the team on his back and, you know, really bail out the defense a couple of times. But I think you've seen times where that's not been the case as well. And so you just want to see if it's two minutes left and the ball is in Geno's hands, can he go down and get you a touchdown or can he not? I think it'll tell you a lot about his ceiling because at this point, we're talking about how much will they be paying Geno. Those are valid questions to be asked. But but anyway, uh, good good stuff from Pete there. I know you talked a little bit uh, after the game on Sunday about Geno's potential <laughs> future here uh, with the team. I, I was asking, is this the beginning of the Geno Smith era? <laughs> I don't know. Whoever knows who says stuff like that. Me, yeah. radio, radio host, hosts. Pete, yeah, radio host for twelve years. You know that. Well, let's begin the era. Um, now you look back and you, you say stuff like that uh, to me. Um, but 
but he's doing great, and we love to be playing with him. And, and uh, so you know, we'll, we'll take care of business when when the time is appropriate and all of that. But uh, you can—I don't see why you couldn't project that Gino can play. You know, what, what, how can anybody? What more can we ask for from the guy? We just need to keep pushing him out there and complimenting what he's doing and, and keep his head on straight and make sure that he stays healthy and, and don't run the ball very much, you know. So there's a few things here. There is no way that Pete's going to actually answer that Geno Smith era question because he's only on a one-year deal, and Pete acknowledging any of that would sort of kind of skew their hand and, and they would lose some leverage in terms of those negotiations. And I do think there'll be tough negotiations with Geno Smith that with them trying to bring him back because he's playing like a top five quarterback and Geno's going to want his money, understandably. And so, yeah, I think that's why he laughs that off. Yeah, he's saying it's it's kind of in the past thing. And I think that's true to some extent. It is how generally how Pete thinks of things. But I think he would have had a better answer for that question if Geno Smith was on like a two or three year deal. I think he would have said something along the lines of, yeah, that, that we you could you could look at it that way or something like that. Like, yeah. So that's part of the reason why he didn't give an answer on that for sure. But make no mistake, Pete has been proven right, and he feels like Gino is a franchise guy. I think he has um, – I think he believes his franchise guy has limitations – but I think he's believed his any franchise guy, any franchise guy he's ever had has limitations. He added that bit about keeping them from running. It's almost the opposite. I mentioned this earlier. It's the opposite of, of what they wanted with Russell. They wanted to get them out around and get them scoring around. They wanted to get them going, right? That's what people say. You you want them out there running around and making plays, right? That's not what he wants from Geno. He wants the opposite from Geno. And I think he's going to be pretty adamant about that. You're going to probably see a lot less of Geno running in the second half because I think Pete's going to emphasize that he does not want that to be the case. And that's interesting. I don't think it's anything – I'm not sure that's an indictment on Geno in any way because we're learning a lot about how Pete likes to protect his quarterbacks. Pete, as a defensive guy, has a very good understanding of what his quarterbacks can and cannot do. And he seems to be able to assess them better than most people give him credit for. Now people are learning that it looks like Pete was protecting Russ with the style of play that they did with the insistence on the run game. Pete's saying the opposite now. Pete is saying he wants Gino to throw it more, right? Gino, we just we just looked at a clip where he's saying we need Gino to get, get it thrown downfield more. We want more up-tempo. Those were things that... Russ was saying, not Pete, right? And now here we are in a new quarterback, and Pete is saying that he wants more up-tempo. And Pete is saying that he wants to throw the ball down the field more based off of the style of his quarterback. And so I, I think I, I my respect has grown for Pete in this regard because people accused him of being stuck in the mud, not wanting to move, but I actually think Pete is extremely adaptable. He has completely switched up his mantra for 10 games, and don't get me wrong, he still wants balanced football, but he doesn't seem to mind throwing it nearly as much as he used to. And it actually gives me confidence that that Pete is going to be able to get the most out of Geno because of that reason. Because of that reason, I feel like 
Gino will be able to succeed probably with the Seahawks more than maybe any other team because it really seems like Pete knows how to protect his quarterbacks. And so it'll be really, it'd be interesting to see what Gino's ceiling really is. I think we've seen his floor and the floor is pretty solid, but I am curious to see if there is, you know, if, if there is a playoff winning quarterback in there. And I think, That'll be the difference. I think either way, you'll see Geno on the Seahawks again. I'd had questions about if Geno could and should be the quarterback of the future. I still have reservations about paying Geno that much money because I don't personally think this roster is Super Bowl ready outside of Geno. I don't think you're just a Geno away from being a Super Bowl roster at all. And I know there's a draft coming up, but I just think they need another free agent or two. If they can manage to get another quality signing, you know, free agent, maybe two, along with hitting on the draft again, then I think this is a Super Bowl roster. I just hope they can find enough funds because they got to re-sign some guys. I'd like to see Ryan Neal back. And then, like I said, I'd like to see them find an outside quality free agent. Uchenna Nuosu is huge for this team. And I just think that you need another Uchenna Nuosu type of signing, right? A guy who is young, who has shown promise, who has just needed opportunity, who you can get on a relatively fair deal, and who is likely to be able to at least be a starting caliber or, you know, quality depth rotation piece for the team. I think that's still needed. But I digress. Um, I think Pete thinks Geno's the quarterback of the future, and I think as a result, You'll see Gino as a quarterback moving forward. At about every turn, Pete, whether it was in the preseason, over the course of this season, heck, even Sunday when you were asked about Gino and, and conversations, you always include Drew Locke. You don't minimize Drew here and what Drew is doing. We don't get to see it behind <clears throat> the scenes, mm -hmm. but you continue to mention him time and again. Why? He's, I think he's really good. And, and he's shown us that we, he's an exciting, uh, has an exciting future. And uh, I, I you know, many times have probably put it in in the light that he's growing too, and he's going to be really good when he gets his chance. And we'll we'll have just as many opportunities to make plays when he's on the field. We see it every day. I mean, he battles every day against our first defense, and you know, competes to try to beat their tails every day. And it's it's great to see, and he's developing in ways that that uh, it just takes time. And and so if if he's fortunate enough to to capture the time in similar fashion that the Gino has he's going to be a terrific player and so uh unfortunately these guys don't get to get on the field to show it but um we see a lot and so we're really I'm, I love having both those guys battling and know that if Gino has to come out and fix the shoelace or something he'll pop in there and away we go and, and uh it'll be exciting to see him we'll be, we'll be fired up for him he's really embraced Seattle He's embraced the Seahawks and being part of our organization in a way that makes it easy to talk like this about him and, and be on his side and, and, and pulling for him, just like we did with Gino. You know, Gino was in, in a similar fashion uh, in, in years past, and so these guys have handled it really well. Bob? Yeah, we, we obviously haven't seen Drew Locke play any game, but what do you see from him in practice <clears throat> when he's practicing and, and all that? And they kind of legitimate. Yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a terrific competitor. He loves going against the first group. You know, he gets a lot of chances to, to throw the ball at the ones, and, and uh, um, he's after it every day trying to, you know, make a play, you know, beat the corners, beat the safeties, the backers, and all that in, in a way so that, you know, just for some 
uh, a little swag ops and, and all that. you know he's got a real c competitive nature about him um, he, he's a uh, he's an active playmaker too you know he can do stuff he's really he's really creative with his this throwing uh, motion and, and all and, and his arm uh, kind of you know the angles that he can come out with the football he's got a lot of stuff to him so um, you know I I think he's really growing too. He's becoming one of our guys and in, in, in understanding, you know, how we take care of the football and, and uh, the responsibility of, of carrying that, that position on our club. And um, so, you know, when he plays, he's going to do a good job for us. And, and, uh, and hopefully we can do it under the right circumstances where Gino doesn't have to come out for the wrong reasons. So. Yeah, I don't think the Seahawks are going to draft a quarterback. I think these comments indicate that if Drew Locke agrees to come back, and it is a question. Now, they'll probably draft a quarterback if Drew Locke does not come back. But they prefer Drew Locke to be their backup. And while to some extent you would want a guy with more upside, I think I would lean in that direction. This quarterback class in college has been a little disappointing, so I can understand how they look at it and say, hey, let's just replicate the Geno Smith uh, cycle, have a guy in our system who knows the plays, become a veteran, get him acclimated with the way that this team plays. He'd already be a step ahead of any rookie that they, let's say they do decide to, to bring in a late rookie. He'd be a step ahead of them, just like Geno was a step ahead of of Drew. This time Drew would have the step ahead of, of Geno. And so I don't know if they really want to hold three quarterbacks on their roster. I think they just look at it as they're going to mold Drew to be the kind of guy they want. They know how to frame their their game plans around his strengths and weaknesses as they get to know him more and better. You know, there are a couple clips there, and in, in particularly I found the second clip most interesting that Bob Condota asked the question about Drew because he talked about Drew becoming one of his guys, essentially. And I think what he's saying is that Drew's getting better at avoiding turnovers in terms of decision-making and how he goes about his processing. And that was huge with, with Pete. To me, that says that Drew is gaining Pete's trust. And Drew didn't have that at first. He didn't have Pete's trust at all. But now I think that's beginning to change. I think you're beginning to see, or we aren't beginning to see, but I think behind the scenes, it, he's buying into the system and I think he's starting to win Pete over. Now, I don't think this puts Geno's job in jeopardy at all. It would still be very similar to a Russell Wilson situation where they view Geno as the guy. And Gino would have to get hurt or Gino would have to play terribly for a long amount of time in order for Drew to be seen. Um, I think there's a few reasons why Pete always brings up Drew. And I think it's in part to motivate Gino, right? To remind him that your job isn't completely safe. I don't think it's too scared you know but i think it is just a a subtle reminder that it's always competing it just goes back to Pete carroll's mantra of always competing and when russell wilson was around he kind of slacked up on that in regards to the quarterback position like there was the russell was the unquestioned starter understandably so but there wasn't a always compete mantra and i think that given Gino's history and how far he's come and where he is right now, he can still plug in the, hey, still make sure you're competing, right? Just a subtle reminder to make sure you're competing as he brings up Drew. But even more than to, to motivate Gino, I think it's more so 
to motivate Drew. See, some people would hear that and go, well, it sounds like Gino's on a short leash. I actually think it's the opposite with Pete. You see, Pete, with his always compete mantra, yes, it to some extent is going to affect the people who are starting. But for him, I think it's more about motivating the people who aren't starting and making sure that they're doing their best and make sure that they don't get complacent in feeling like there's never going to be their turn. So that he's letting those guys know, I'm paying attention to what you're doing. What you're doing matters. Continue to compete. Don't give up. Don't feel like your chance isn't going to come. Stay at it. I think that's really the, the thought process. It's because Pete knows that Drew does, uh, that Gino does have a long leash. Because he does. I mean, he have to play terribly for like six games, I think, at this point. For, for have Drew to see the, I mean, because especially given everything Gino has done, he's got an extremely long leash. He have to really screw up, like five turnovers in a game. I think to be benched, like he'd have to do something massive to be benched at any point this season. And I think Pete knows that, and he wants to keep Drew sharp, keep practicing. Let it, I'm I'm letting you know I see you. Keep at it like Gino did. I think that's the message. That's the main motivation behind. Him always bringing up Drew. He just doesn't want Drew to get complacent, especially because Drew is a younger quarterback, even more so than Gino. And if you go back and look at it, if you if you really remember, there were times when Pete would randomly bring up Gino. Right? Nobody thought he was a factor, but when he was talking about the quarterbacks and how well they're coming, he said he'd say something like, you know, don't forget about Gino either. Gino's still there. He's still competing. He's still um, showing us what he's about. Right? He'd say something along those lines. He couldn't do it as often because there was some friction there with Russell, right? So he couldn't do that as often as he might do that going forward with Gino. But it was still just that thought, that that work to put it out there to help motivate Gino to keep him aware that the coach is paying attention to what you're doing to continue to compete. And I think finally, the number one thing that Pete hopes, and the reason why, going back to where I don't think that the Seahawks are going to draft a quarterback anymore, is because Pete would love nothing more than to for Gino to either walk away or finish out his contract, and they move on from him from whatever for whatever reason or another. It would hopefully, in Gino's, in Pete's mind, it would not be for injury. It would just be because Gino, they couldn't get something worked out with the contract or, you know, Gino played two or three years and then he walked away, went to another team. Pete will have nothing more than for Drew to have stayed for that whole time to grow and learn behind Gino and for him to basically become the next Gino Smith story because and I'll tell you why that's so meaningful for Pete or why he would want to see that kind of cycle continue. Because his whole culture is about competition. It's about never giving up. It's about grit. It's about fighting it out to the end. It's about never say never. Gino is the embodiment of that. And what Pete would love nothing more is to say it's his system is to say it's not just the Geno story. If you're a Seattle Seahawk and you come here, it doesn't matter where you are on the depth chart. 
if you learn, if you grow, if you improve, if you buy into our system, if the opportunity presents itself, we will reward you. You will get the opportunities. And because of what you're what you did buying into the system, you'll be better for it. You will be a more improved player. You will see the growth in yourself. You will surprise yourself, maybe even. He would love nothing more than to preach that message than for his quarterback room to reflect at the very top of the roster everything that he wants to happen at the bottom of the roster. It would be an incredible messaging story. It would just be the perfect, as he would say, illustration of what competition could and should look like. So I think he's going to press hard to have his quarterback room probably for the next two to three years be Geno Smith and Drew Locke if Pete gets his way. Now, there are factors that are beyond his control. Drew could decide he wants another opportunity somewhere else, and so could Geno for that matter. So it might not be how it falls, but I'll tell you this. If Pete had his way, he would have for the next two to three years a Geno Smith, Drew Locke quarterback room with eventually Geno finishing out his contract, moving on, and then promoting Drew Locke. Now, can that work? I don't know. It'll be interesting to follow, but I got to tell you this. If you think Pete's going somewhere anytime soon, I think this story has done nothing but invigorate him. He's already signed an extension through five years. It would not surprise me if he signed an, an additional extension. I mean, I just don't think this guy sees the end. I think he lives for this stuff, and I don't think he knows anything more. I don't think he'd sign for another five years, but I can see him signing some sort of, like, two-year extension because I think he would love to see this maturation process and say, for each quarterback, this is how I handled it, especially after years and years and years of being told he's being carried by Russ. He would love nothing more than to make not only Geno the success story, but to then make Drew a success story. And I don't know if he would stick around and make a rookie uh, a success story or not, because I think he does prefer veterans. So that's just I'll just throw that out there. That's, that's one more reason why I think that the Seahawks won't be investing highly at the very least. I don't think they'll draft a quarterback, but if they do, it won't be a high pick because Pete doesn't really like rookies that much. I think at the quarterback position, I think he prefers experience. I think he thinks the experience is so important, and I'm not sure he'll have the patience to deal with some of the because he's so at he said he hates turnovers and I think he can deal with turnovers when it's like a fumble or something from a running back but when it's like a quarterback making decisions it just he just struggles with that and I think he thinks he's more likely to see that with a rookie court, court uh, quarterback I mean if you even think about it Russell wasn't supposed to start as a rookie they had Matt Flynn right and he was supposed to be the guy they only got Russell because they felt like they already had the veteran quarterback. Even in a rebuilding year, they've always chosen these veteran guys because I just don't think he likes the rookie mistakes that come with a quarterback. And Russell was the exception. He was mature in a way that he, in a lot of ways, he wasn't like a rookie, right? Almost like Tariq Woolen and the way he's matured and the way he's caught on to the process where he's not playing like a rookie. And so Pete has started him. I think it's the same thing at the quarterback position. It'd have to be something miraculous. But the idea of him drafting a rookie is probably not appealing to him. 
I think he feels like he can get it done with an experienced veteran. That's why he didn't want Russ to be traded in the first place. He gave a lot of pushback against it for a while. And that's why. That's that's how Pete prefers to play ball. And I understand that's going to upset some of you guys. You're not going to be happy to hear that. I understand it. I think there is an argument to be made about the upside you can get in questioning if Drew Locke really does have that upside. I question it myself, but maybe he does. Uh, maybe Drew really can learn a lot with the decision-making of Geno. Geno is a master at reading defenses and making the right decisions, if nothing else. If Drew could get that, he would be like the franchise guy. I think they'd prefer to never have to draft a uh, rookie quarterback. I think they'd prefer to lock, to get G, to break those bad habits from Drew Locke, stick him in there, and have him be the guy who's young enough to still have upside. And he would be. You know, three years from now, he'd be like 28, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And he'd have the upside to, to still be better. And so... Um, it's interesting what the Seahawks plan to do with the quarterback position. I believe they are looking to set a new trend. And we all thought that it was the trend of not paying a quarterback in the sense that, you know, that, that, that basically they wanted a, rookie, wanted a rookie contract. And I think to some extent that that was true. But I think they found this new path, and I think they are interested in trying to see if they can set the trend in reclamation projects in quarterbacks and kind of the same thing where you can get a lower cost quarterback because you know maybe they have some flaws almost like a goodwill of quarterbacks where like maybe it has some flaws maybe it wasn't it didn't work in this situation but we'll pick it up and take care of it and nourish it and, and be able to put it to good use eventually it'll find its home and work out great. I think they might be trying that approach is what it sounds like from Peter. He seems very interested in that approach and I don't know where John stands on all of that. Pete does not have the end all be all say in that. John might have a different perspective from as a GM. Maybe he find maybe John would prefer the rookie quarterback approach. So it'll be interesting to see but either way uh, I, I, I think I was not sure if they were going to go all defense with this draft, I think they will. And um, after hearing some of Pete's thoughts, I understand why, for sure. Well, guys, that's all the time we have for today. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this edition of Parsing Pete after the Germany game. Our next episode will feature some second-half predictions. I'll go through and tell you guys my opinion on what I think will happen this this upcoming half of the season and how really they might end up falling in the West. We also break down and, and do a little bit of a preview for the Raiders game um, that, that the Seahawks, that, that's who they'll face after the bye week, their next opponent. So anyway, in the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter. You can find me at CandiceH901. Be sure to follow the show at Ethos Seahawks for updated content, polls, analysis, and more. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We appreciate you guys. Um, please give us a follow, a like, a comment if you're only listening on YouTube. That's it, guys. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.